0: Would you join me in prayer. Gracious God, as Ken comes up now, would you bless him? Would you speak through him? May our hearts uh, be ready to receive your word this morning. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, It's good to be with you this morning. As Pastor Travis mentioned, my name is Ken Kuhn. Um, I'm the family ministry director here at Bethany Eastside. And I love the opportunity to come and be with you in Big Kid Church. I spend a lot of time in Little Kid Church. Um, And, you know, they they really, they've got it. They really got it. Um, But before we begin talking about our scripture this morning, I want to talk a little bit about Advent. So the wonderful thing about Advent is it's this season. It's a season in which we are waiting. We're waiting for the coming Messiah. We are waiting for Jesus. And so I've been talking about this with the kids because it's kind of one of those foundational building blocks for Christianity. Jesus is coming. And so at the, at the beginning of December, we started talking about Advent. And I said, okay, Advent is waiting for the coming Messiah, Jesus. And after that first week, there was a little bit of like, uh, okay, we're, we're starting to get it. Okay, great. Second week, back in there with the elementary kids, Advent is waiting for crickets. Okay, we're getting there, slowly but surely, waiting for the coming Messiah, Jesus. And then week three, last week, I'm in there, and I'm like, okay, guys, what is Advent about? And together, they're like, waiting. And I was like, yes, we've gotten there. Waiting for what? And this little boy in first grade raises his hand and goes, for chocolate. (laughs) And I thought, you must have an Advent calendar at home. And it's in this season of waiting that we experience this joy and this peace, or at least our kids do. And as I started to think about this season, and I started to process through like the joy of a child in the Advent season, and then the way in which I interact with adults in this season, the juxtaposition between the two is quite clear, right? In this season, one that is meant to be one of anticipation and joy, it's often filled with anxiety and struggle, hardship, loneliness, memories of of Christmas season's past that bring with them um, some less than pleasant feelings. And you know, it's in the midst of this that we as a church have been going through this series called Hope Breaks Through. And it's this morning, as we talk about Jesus, that we're going to see that in the midst of this struggle, in the midst of this hardship, in the midst of the tribulations that we find ourselves in in this time, that it's really the promise of the coming Messiah that brings us hope. I was looking in uh, to the word in Greek for hope this week, and the word in Greek is peace. And peace is a confidence born of expectation. That's the way it's defined. A confidence born of expectation. Do you love that? I love that. I was reading a theologian named Joseph Pieper. He's a 20th century theologian who spends a lot of, spent a lot of his time talking about Christian virtue, the way in which Christians are called to act. Uh, and he himself did a lot of study of the early church father, uh, Thomas Aquinas. And so he would look at the Thomistic works and then he would talk about the Christian values and virtues seen within. And one of the key virtues that Joseph Pieper talks about is hope. And one of the things that I love about Joseph Pieper's work is he talks about many of the Christian virtues. But when he talks about hope, he seems to believe that Christians have the corner of the market on this one. He thinks and talks about the way in which the Christian virtue of hope is predominantly a Christian virtue and not a virtue that is often shared like many of the other virtues he talks about because it is due to the promise of the coming Messiah that we have hope. And because we have the corner on the market on hope, we should be beacons of hope. Hope breaks through this morning. But as we've been talking about, it breaks through our unbelief. It breaks through our weakness. And the only reason it continues to break through in our lives and through our lives in the lives of others is because we can, help, we can hold on to the promise that is Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 1, the verses that Travis just shared, and we're going to be looking at the way in which God shows up in the life of Joseph. And so we're going to start this morning talking about the bit of a conundrum our protagonist finds himself in this morning. And then we're going to talk about the ways in which God shows up. The promise of hope this morning is that God is with us. The promise is a promise of presence. And so if you open your Bibles with me, we're in chapter 1 of Matthew, uh, verses 18 through 23. I'm going to read a couple of these again. Now, the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, But before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. But just when he had resolved to do this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him. Now, when we think about this moment for Joseph, on this side of history, it's very easy for us to say, "Whoa, it's all right. Like why would you don't don't divorce her?" Like it, that's that's actually Jesus. It's it's the coming Messiah. It's going to be okay. But as we but as we kind of look through these verses 18 and 19, we see a couple of things that should grab our attention and really helps us to empathize with Joseph. And so first of all, we see in verse 18, where it says, When his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, but before they lived together, she was found to be with child from the, quote, Holy Spirit. Now, in this time, it's really important that Jewish culture in the first century uh, participated in a process called betrothal. And betrothal is very different than the engagement process that we see or think about today. But rather, it's a communal process, and it's a long process. So the betrothal um, moment would happen when the fathers of the bride-to-be and the groom-to-be would come together, express their desires for this marriage to be arranged, and then the groom would say, yes, I agree to this. And then a dowry would be exchanged, and then the betrothal process would start. The betrothal process usually lasted for about a year, and that's, that's a good thing because um, when we're talking about Mary and Joseph in this moment, we're talking about two teenagers. So often the woman, the bride-to-be, would be between the ages of 12 and 14 or 15, and the, the groom-to-be would often be between the ages of 16 and 19. So we're talking about teenagers here. So this year gives them a little bit of a, a time to grow up. It also gives them a little bit of time to get to know each other. So betrothals happened in arranged marriage culture, which means that boys and girls, once they started hitting pubescence, they stopped being around one another. So there's a really good chance that Mary and Joseph may have known of each other's families but hadn't really spent very much time together, at least not since they were kids. And then finally, it's this time that the Bible talks about multiple times in the Old Testament, But it's something that's really present in the betrothal process, which is Joseph, as the husband-to-be, would go and make a room for him and his wife once they were married. He would add a room on to his father's house, or he would go and make a house of his own. And it's in this process, it's in this time, where um, Mary and Joseph would be getting to know each other. They would be falling in love. Joseph would be stepping into this new role as a betrothed young man as he's hitting this milepost, in his life of entering into a, an adulthood. And in the midst of this, he'd be building a room, a home for his wife to be. And then the Bible tells us that Mary is found to be with child. Now the word found here in the Greek is horisko, which is also has the same root word as the word heuristic or a way of knowing. And so interpreters play a lot around a lot with this particular verse. Because there's this question of, how did Joseph find out? How did Joseph find out? Was it a surprise? Was it detected? Was it an investigation? No, probably not. In fact, most interpreters would agree that Mary probably came and told Joseph. And that's why it reads, was found to be the child from the Holy Spirit. Because in this moment, Mary probably went to Joseph and explained the vision that she had from the angel, the vision we see in the Gospel of Luke. And in sharing this, would have told Joseph, look, like I'm pregnant, but it's, don't worry, it's, it's the Messiah. It's the Messiah. It's, it's of the Holy Spirit. And so as we've laid out in this moment, Joseph, probably not having much of a relationship with Mary, um, and then having like, been kind of readjusting and realigning his life around this idea that he was moving into marriage for this period of time with this woman, and she comes to him and says, oh, I'm pregnant, but don't worry, it's the Messiah, I think the response would be, well, that's a coincidence. The person that we've been waiting for, for all this time, just happens to be in your womb? Hmm. And I think that if we start entering into this moment with Joseph, we have to give him a little grace. Because in this moment, I think he's experiencing betrayal. I think he probably feels dishonored. He probably feels disrespected and that he probably doesn't trust Mary, which is unfortunate. And he probably shouldn't have these feelings, but he does. We're talking about a late teenage boy. And so I imagine that things are looking pretty dark for Joseph at this moment. Not to mention that this moment for him as a young man in Jewish culture it ha- means a lot. And so the social ramifications for Joseph to be living in this space are pretty tricky. And yet, the Bible tells us that the way he responds in this moment is a just way, is a righteous way. Verse 19 says, Joseph, being a righteous man and unwilling to expose her to public disgrace, planned to dismiss her quietly. And the important thing to know here about betrothal culture, as much as it's a full community thing to come together to throw a party, the betrothal has been confirmed. In a year, they will be married, and we will celebrate once again. Breaking a betrothal or divorce in first-century Jewish culture was actually a fairly simple thing, and it was a fairly quiet thing. Because in the shame-honor culture that existed at this time period in history, if you were going to be a family who had a divorced member or... You or a betrothal was going to be broken, this is a big deal socially. And so the rules in place made it so that it could be done quietly. However, for whatever reason that betrothal or divorce was broken off, one of the worst reasons it could be broken off is because of adultery. So there's this assumption that if Mary's pregnant, Joseph knows one thing. He knows it's not his. And so that means that the chances are if there's actually a baby in there, something went down with somebody else. And the Bible and the law of the Old Testament is pretty clear that the penalty for adultery is being stoned to death. Now, luckily for Mary, at this point in history, it was very rare for people in the Jewish culture to stone a woman with child to death for the child's sake. But we do know that because of her infidelity, it would be a social nightmare for her to find another husband. If Joseph actually did break off their betrothal and divorce her. And so he wanted, the Bible tells us that he wanted to, d- to dismiss her quietly so that she could hopefully go to another town, have her baby, and have a new life, one that was not tied to the sin of adultery that she had apparently committed at this time. Now we know on our side of history that Joseph uh, was a little unsure of himself and. He's going to find out soon enough, but before verse 20, in this moment for Joseph, I imagine that this is a fairly dark moment, a moment of loneliness and depression, a moment much like some of the feelings and moments that we have in the holiday season, and yet the promise in verse 20 is that the Lord God shows up. And so this morning, we're going to unpack verses 20 through 23. We're going to talk about the way that God shows up in this moment for Joseph. And yet, before we move into that, I want to pull on this moment a little bit more of this this dark moment for Joseph. The Bible says he was a righteous Jewish man. And as such, he probably prayed about this thing. Can you imagine being in this moment praying for something and then not hearing anything from God, there's an assumption I'm making here that he prayed, and I'm also making an assumption he didn't hear before the Bible says in verse 20 that he resolved to divorce. And I'm imagining that sometime in that process, he had to make a decision to actually divorce Mary. And I am imagining if he was truly a righteous man, that he would have gone about that in prayer. And I think in the midst of this prayer, this is a prayer that we've probably prayed before. In this moment of loneliness, betrayal, shame, maybe some guilt, Joseph prays. I would imagine Joseph is praying, God, where are you? Yahweh, where are you? And he hears nothing. He hears nothing and so he resolves to divorce Mary. And it's, it's this moment of silence that is so beautifully placed here at the beginning of Matthew. I love the place that this chapter falls in the narrative of the Bible, because what we know is this is the first chapter of the first book of the New Testament. But if we turn our Bible pages back just a couple, we're in the Old Testament. We're in Malachi. And this moment from after which Malachi prophesied until the time of the New Testament was about 400 years of radio silence. It wasn't only Joseph that was hearing nothing from God at this point in history. It was the Jewish people. We know from history that during this 400 years of silence, the Jewish people experienced oppression, persecution, Babylonian occupation. They felt taken away from their homes. And in those moments, a whole nation of people, Israel, calling out, Yahweh, where are you? Yahweh, where are you? It's dark and we hear nothing. And Joseph, it's dark and we hear nothing. And sometimes in in this holiday season, we are there too. God, where are you? It's dark and I hear nothing. And yet, this moment where this angel arrives is a moment that we've known has been coming. Isaiah 9, chapter 2 chapter 2, I'm sorry, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2 says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who lived in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shined. Verse 6, For a child has been born for us, a son given to us. Authority rests upon his shoulders, and he is named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace." It's in this moment I want to dig in to this this mighty counselor that Jesus is called. Because I believe that one of the beautiful parts about the story, one of the beautiful parts about the coming of the Lord, after this 400 years of silence, after this, this grieving, after this loneliness, after this betrayal of Joseph, in the moment that this angel shows up, it's in this immense darkness that the light gets to shine so much brighter. And so it's in this portion of the scripture that we hear this promise that in the midst of great decisions in our life, God promises to be present. And in Joseph's life, this is illustrated through the angel coming and talking with Joseph. And it's so clear here that as the counselor, God is revealing something to Joseph through the angel of the Lord saying, Joseph, your plan was not the plan that I had for you. And here is what it is to be. And this is a promise that we see all throughout the the Bible. Psalm 32, 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Isaiah 41, 10 says, Do not fear, for I am with you. John 21, this is the story of Peter and Jesus on the beach after Jesus had resurrected from the grave. And Peter had denied Christ three times. And in this moment, Jesus comes to Peter and says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, I love you, Lord. And Jesus says a second time, Peter, do you love me? And Peter says, I love you, Lord. And for a third time, as if to cancel Peter's sin, Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And Peter cries out, Lord, you know that I love you. And it's out of this moment that Jesus says, okay, then go and feed my sheep. Jesus instructs and shares this vision for Peter's life, and Peter goes on to be one of the rocks of the early church. See, I'm convinced when I read the word of the Lord that God isn't interested in in keeping his plan for our lives hidden. But in fact, the promise of presence this morning is that in the midst of that, God will go with us in God's plan? Hear this, church God has a plan for your life, and God is not a God who is interested in withholding that from you. But rather, in the midst of that struggle, in the midst of that crossroads of decision, in the midst of crisis, God promises to be present with us. Verse 20 says uh, of chapter one, Says that when the angel of the Lord appeared, it said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. It's, o- it's often that when we hear of angels coming to those in the Bible, we hear this phrase, do not be afraid. And often we assume that's because it would be a fairly shocking experience to uh, see an angel. I know, I've never seen an angel, but I imagine it'd be a pretty shocking experience if I did. And, but yet, I, I think it's important to realize the sentence structure on this one. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. It's one whole sentence, the period's at the end. And I think that this angel understands the struggle that Joseph is going through and understands that while his physical body is not at stake in this moment, his social life is. And I think that taking Mary as a wife and fathering a child, a boy in this culture that is not his, is probably something to be afraid of. But here's the promise. The promise is, you make this decision to to listen to the plan that I have for your life, and then as the story goes on, we find out in verse 23, look, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall name him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. The second promise of presence is that God is going to walk the journey with us, and God will be present in the midst of that. Now, I think the natural question that comes after such a great statement is, okay, Ken, so how do we feel God's presence? It's a good question. It's a genuine question. And I think this morning there's four key ways that I want you to think about as places to experience the presence of God. The first is the Bible. I believe that this book, cover to cover, is filled with truth, and truth that God has a plan for us and is willing to reveal it to us in this living word and it's through reading the bible that we see a picture of who we are to be in christ and out of that it should direct the way in which we live our life so i believe that through the bible you should you will find if you seek the presence and you will feel the presence of the lord a second place that i feel like we should be aware of god is through the holy spirit so when Jesus went to heaven after, after rising from the grave, he promised that he would send to us the Holy Spirit to guide us, to be our advocate, and to walk with us. And so in the midst of that, discerning what God has for us and what God's presence looks like is something in which we need to engage the Holy Spirit and seek what the Spirit is doing in our lives and the lives around us. The third place that I believe that we experience the presence of the Lord is through the church. Church, we are called to be a people who gather and worship God in such a way that we point one another towards the goodness of God. And as we continually point one another towards God, we begin to transform and our lives look more like which God has for us. I think, it, I think that God speaks through others, and the church is a wonderful place to be in community with one another and to hear the voice of God. And then finally, the sermon series that we just went through, you can find it online if you want to catch back up with it. Um, We just went through spiritual disciplines. And I think this is also a really great place to feel and experience the presence of God. Um, one of the disciplines that Pastor Travis uh, challenged us to that really sunk in for me was the discipline of fasting. And my experience of fasting in the past has always kind of been defined as, you know, setting aside that thing that is standing between my relationship with God. And then, so we find these things in our lives that might be like standing in the way, like, oh, I'll give up my social media time, like, no more Twitter time today, or I got to stop binging shows on Netflix, or I need to work a little bit less and pray a little bit more. These are all good ideas. But you know, one of the things that Pastor Travis revealed to us through the actual spiritual discipline of fasting is that it probably revolves around food on purpose. And so Pastor Travis had challenged us to fast once a week, starting at the end of dinner on Tuesday and going until the beginning of dinner on Wednesday. And so Emily and I, my wife, decided to take on this challenge and step into it. And I'll tell you, I was completely floored by the profound ways that fasting actually worked. Uh, we, would, I would, we would finish eating on Tuesday and everything would be fine, and then we'd wake up t- t- Wednesday morning and be a little hungry, but it's fine. But then, it, where it really set in was about 10.30. 10.30 in the morning is where it hit me. No matter what I was doing, no matter where I was, there was just this feeling like, oh, there it is. I'm hungry. And you know, when that hunger pain comes upon you, you're you're not going to miss it. You can't forget that you're hungry. You can't forget that it's there. Your body is telling you that you're hungry. And in the midst of that, there's this reminder, this realigning pain to say, hey, what is it? What is the purpose for you this morning? That's right. We're lifting up this thing in prayer. We're praying through this thing and 10.30, and then 11.15, and then 11.30. They're getting smaller, do you see that? Um, and I'm feeling this hunger, feeling this hunger, and we get to dinner, and we are getting ready to break our fast with one another, and we sit down across from each other at the table, and then we talk about it. First, we commiserate in how hungry we are, and then we stuff our faces, and after dinner, we sit and talk about the ways in which God revealed God's self to us. It was profound. Spiritual disciplines are a place to experience the presence and feel God moving in our lives. But it's this promise, the second promise, the promise of presence, the promise that God would go before us that is key for Joseph. The claim to not be afraid for the son that would be born, would be named Jesus, and he would be the savior of his people. It's in this claim that the angel makes, that he pro- the angel promises that as Joseph goes, God would go with. And again, if we look at the way in which the gospel of Matthew is laid out, we see how important this truth is to Matthew. In verse uh, 23 of chapter 1, we see that Jesus shall be named Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And interestingly enough, if we turn to the very end of Matthew, we often think at the end of Matthew that uh, at the end is the Great Commission, go and make disciples. And it's there, but often a line that gets left off of the very end. In the words of Jesus, the last sentence of the Gospel of Matthew is this, Remember, I am with you always till the end of the age. From the beginning to the end, the promise of presence is book-ending both sides of the Gospel story of Jesus Christ. Book-ending both sides of the truth that God was with us, that God came tangibly, lived amidst, God's creation, so that once again we could be reconciled to be in relationship with God in the way in which we are created to be. The relation that we got to have in the garden that we didn't have any longer after sin, it was reconciled and realigned in the work and the life and the death of Jesus Christ. God is with us. And you know, uh, the wonderful part about this truth is it's, it continues to be spoken. This is only the first book of the New Testament. We hear about it again and again and again. Um, and one of the people who loves to talk about it the most is the Apostle Paul. And we've been walking through Romans 8 as we've been walking through this sermon series of Advent. And we've been seeing the ways in which Paul continues to point the church in Rome towards the promises of God He's been saying, Look, the hope that breaks through in the midst of your unbelief, in the midst of your weakness, is the truth that you are a child of God, that you have the Spirit of God, and because of that, you have a future promise of hope in living a life forever with God. And so, in the midst of that, we find ourselves this morning in Romans chapter 8. And this is kind of the exclamation at the, at the end of a, of a time of talking about the promises of God. And this is what Paul writes. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not withhold his own son but gave him up for all of us, will he not with him also give us everything else? Who else... Who will bring any charge against God's people? It is God who justifies, who is to condemn. It is Christ Jesus who died. Yes, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed intercedes for us? Who will separate us from the love of Christ? And then Paul goes to name this list, this list that's important to him. Maybe it's important to the Church of Romans. This is a list of the things that may try and separate us from the love, from the presence of God And he says, will it be hardship? Will it be distress, persecution, or famine, nakedness, or peril, or the sword? The answer in verse 37 of chapter eight of Romans is no. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. This moment, this moment of excitement for Paul should be an exciting moment of hope for us as well. I was reading a commentary on this particular passage this week. And uh, there was this line that just like hit me right between the eyes, and I couldn't help but, but share it with you this morning. Uh, James Dunn is talking about the excitement that Paul is experiencing in this moment. He says everything is leading up to this moment in Romans where Paul is exclaiming to the church of Rome that this is the truth, that God loved us so much that nothing can separate us from God's love, and this is the word of encouragement that... that um, James Dunn shares. He writes, We know that this is exciting and we know that this is true because the work of Paul coming after the life of Christ points back to the fact that Christ himself passed through these same hardships. This is the beauty of Christ being with us. Christ literally lived through the corporal pain that we face. And the response to this is that God's love reaches back to those still enmeshed in tribulations, and does what? Brings us through to where he is. I love that. This is great news. This is great news for us, and this is really great news for Joseph. God's calling Joseph in this moment to step into a lot of social risk. And you know, the promise here is not that it will be easy, for it's never easy. The promise is that God would be present and that, we, that God would journey alongside of Joseph as he goes through it. The promise here is that we never walk the path alone. And so the question for us this morning, as we wrap up this, this passage of understanding and coming to terms with the promise of presence, is that there are things in our lives, in this season and other seasons, that can lead us to places of struggle and hardship And so the question is, what's on your list today? What is on your list of the things that you think may be standing between you and the love of God? Where are the places where you don't feel God's presence? Well, the truth is, no matter what's on that list, those things have no power over you, and they will not separate you from the love of God. See, as we wait in this Advent season... We can sit in this promise, and we can have this confidence born of expectation. Hope is a confidence in the one that is born in a stable and lain in a manger. The promise this morning is that God has been, will be, and is always present in our lives. This is made possible through the gift. The promise of presence comes through the Son, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, God, with us. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this moment. We thank you for this time where we get to step into your promises. God, we know that this is a time that is sometimes hard. It's sometimes filled with struggles. It's sometimes filled with anxiety. But Lord, we pray that we would feel your presence in the midst of it. And that we would take hope in the promise that you, God, will always be with us. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.